Now, I don't know about you, I hate going to the grocery store, coming back, I, I, I bought some fruit, we go through a lot of fruit, coming back with fruit, and then finding that something inside that bag has kind of spoiled it all, right? I'm sure you've all had that, especially for us this summer. Because of the rising prices, I've gone to one of the cheaper stores. <laughs> Twice, I remember going out. I, I remember buying a big bag of apples and coming home and tearing the bag open and looking for one to eat. It, they looked great, but when you start moving them around, there was one that was rotten, and where it had touched the other apples, it had contaminated and started to rot them as well. Another time I bought some raspberries. They were on sale. I should have known better, but I thought I looked at them. I thought I examined the, the clamshell, but when I got home and moved the top ones aside, literally, it was just all slimy and white underneath. So something had gone bad and contaminated the rest. Well, that obviously is where we get the phrase in English, it only takes one bad apple to ruin the whole bunch, doesn't it? It sounds like something my mother would have said to me on a Friday night and I was going out with my friends on the town. Remember, it only takes one bad apple. <laughs> That's just one of the things moms say. Now, thinking about that, as we come to Scripture, we also know Paul, in two places at least, in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 5, tells us that we have a spiritual reality as well, just like that. We talks a little bit of leaven spoils the whole lump, meaning that it, it only takes a little bit of sin in the life of a believer to actually ruin your walk with God. It only takes a little bit of sin within the body of Christ in the church to ruin the testimony of the church. Well, that's certainly what we're looking at this morning in this story of Ananias and Sapphira, isn't it? Our first thoughts as we read it, and we think... What a terrible judgment. Thank God, God doesn't, he doesn't act like that these days. But before we get complacent, I want to challenge you that there are some serious lessons that we need to learn from here for us this morning. Very sobering lessons that, that we need to apply in our own lives and in the life of the church. Now, before we go too far, I just want to just say that did you notice I started in chapter 4, verse 32? When the scriptures were read, it was actually chapter 4, verse 32. And maybe you've read this section many times before, and outside of the example of Barnabas, never really connected what happens at the end of chapter 4 and what we're told happens at the beginning of chapter 5. But the story of Ananias and Sapphira really starts back in chapter 4, verse 32. The obvious link is first and foremost that both Barnabas and Ananias bring this, uh, uh, the sale of a property up to the feet of the apostles, and they want the apostles to distribute the funds. Uh, i give you a little bit of foreshadowing. There's also the uh, final result in the end of the first section. Then there is a great reverence upon the people of God. In the second, there is a great reverence, but in terms of a fear upon the people of God. So that's the obvious link between them. But you know what? There is so many stark contrasts, it's not funny. And this is what helps connect the two together. So think of the end of chapter 4 as the control of a scientific study. You know, you were in high school and you had a, 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 something you had to do. And so you had this control. So everything that happens at the end of chapter 4 is if the science project goes well, 
this is what's going to happen. The other one, however, is the introduction of something new, something that's going to upset or change the, the system. And so what we see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is the introduction of sin into what is supposed to be the pristine, loving people of God. When the gospel is central to the church, the preaching of the Word of God, as we see in verses 11 through 32, really is the grace of God being poured out upon the people. And the effect is upon us, as the Word is central, as the gospel is central, we become people of one heart, one mind. There is a unity between us that, that is the result of the Holy Spirit. There is a sanctifying effect upon the people of God, and every need is met. This scene is really highlighted by Barnabas' gift. He is a man transformed. We're, we're to see him as the example par excellence of somebody who comes to faith in Christ and gives selflessly, generously, his love for God and his selflessness actually gains him the name by the apostles as the son of encouragement. I don't know what he was named before that, but the apostles specifically gave him that name because of the abounding love and the generosity that just flowed from this man. But when we start chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we see that introduction of the leaven of sin. We see not only evil intentions, but we see evil actions and sins being played out. And they bring great harm to the church. So the contrast between the two are, are quite stark. Instead of godly actions that are motivated by thankfulness, there is a great sin that is motivated by greed. Instead of selfless servanthood, there is selfish ambition. Instead of holding all things in common, we're holding things for personal gain. Instead of unity, there is disunity. Instead of generosity, there's greed. Instead of a great abundance of grace, there's great judgment upon the people of God. And instead of great feelings of faith and joy, there is great fear. There's great, great all through these things. And, and they're pitted against each other so that as we read this narrative, they're to jump out at us. We're to see how these are connected. So really, again, we can't understand the reality of, of Ananias and Sapphira without going back to chapter 4, verse 32. So let's start this morning by actually clarifying what the problem is here. Both Barnabas and Ananias sell a property. It's probably not their primary residence. It's probably a secondary one, but it doesn't matter. They sell it, they take the proceeds, and they lay it at the feet of the apostles and basically say, whatever needs in the church there may be, just use it. I, I, don't tell people who it is. The difference is that in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, we're told something very important about their intentions, aren't we? That they wanted to hold some back for themselves. They, they wanted to take some of the sale of the, of the house and keep it for themselves. Is that wrong? No. And we're told very specifically, when Peter confronts Ananias, he says what? When you owned the house, it was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. And then here's the thing, he says, 
when you sold the house, you had the money in your hand. You still could have done whatever you wanted with it. The difference is you've come to me and said, this portion here is what we sold it for, and you've lied. So what are they guilty of? Well, they're guilty of colluding and conspiring to cheat God. They're guilty of hypocrisy. They're saying that we're such great benefactors of the church. We're so generous. You can have this. But really, they're not being true to who they're supposed to be. They're pretending to be people that they're not. They're guilty of dark ambition because they wanted to be like Barnabas. Here was this man who had all the accolades of the apostles, and he has this wonderful name, and, and all these blessings are going out. Now, you may ask, well, how do I know that? How can I make that assumption? Well, simply by the narrative of the story itself. When these two examples are set side by side and we're given their names, as we read them, we're to understand that the example of Barnabas is to be a foil for what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. So, yes, they, they wanted fame. They wanted to be recognized in the church. They, they wanted to come to Chinese Gospel Church in the morning and, and have on the nice duds or the nice car and, and come in and, and people just know that you're very generous with all that you have. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be recognized as great benefactors for the church. People who they could look up to, who others could look up to. People who were known as great encouragers. They were also guilty, we're told, of lying to the Holy Spirit. That's specifically what Peter tells Ananias, isn't it? And by saying that, they're giving over the whole amount of the sale of the property, and yet they haven't, they're lying. And the specific evil that Peter says is, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. Now, as a little aside, this is one of the most important places in the, in the Word of God to understand that the third person of the Trinity is actually a person. We talk about the Holy Spirit, and we think of this ethereal thing without any character, without any form. But the Holy Spirit is a person. Who can you lie against unless it is a person? And in fact, if you take a theology class and you ever talk about the person of the Holy Spirit, this is one of the key texts that they go to. Because they say they've lied to God the Spirit. So again, so they're colluding, they're conspiring, and they've lied to the Holy Spirit, so they've cheated God. Now, understand, their sin wasn't that they kept some of the money back for themselves. They had every right to do that, Peter says. And yet, what we read here is that there's a dark overtone to what they're doing. When we read that word, they kept back for themselves. That's, that's a very specific word usage here that we just need to think about. Can you think of another example in the Bible? <coughs> Specifically, in the Old Testament, where somebody kept back something and there was great judgment? <coughs> what about Achan in Joshua chapter 7? This is the exact same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, in Joshua chapter 7. Now, you remember that story? Israel is, is coming into the promised land. God is their warrior king, leading them forth. They, they take Jericho just by walking around it and sounding horns. They don't even have to go to war against it. 
And then after that great victory, they come up against the city of Ai. And they're humiliated, they're defeated by this small army. And, and God says, I'll tell you why, Joshua, gather all the people of God, assemble them according to their clans. And then he says, all right, go past this tribe, go past this clan, and go to this family of Achan. Search his tent. And when they did, they found underneath the sand several hundred shekels of silver that they had taken from Jericho. Now, this was serious. This was something God said, I am the Lord who is leading you forward. Any plunder is mine. You're not allowed to take any of this. And yet they kept back, and that's the word that's used here. They kept back for themselves something that rightfully belonged to God. So we have this spiritual equivalency being set up for us if we recognize what's going on in the story here. God reveals to Joshua, it's Achan, and now God is revealing through Peter the same thing is going on with Ananias and Sapphira. There is a corresponding situation between what is happening with Israel as they're entering the promised land and what is happening now to the newly formed people of God as they are called to move out. And we'll get to that in a couple minutes. There is also a corresponding reality of sin in the people of God between the time of Achan and the time now that we're looking at. The Apostle Peter says something else about Ananias' sin. And it should strike us, really. He says, Satan filled your heart. This is the first time, and I think the only time in the book of Acts, where Satan is named and said he is out there as an enemy of yours, as an enemy of the church. And we know from everything that we've looked at so far, there is an increased persecution that's going to come to a culmination in a couple chapters with the, with the martyrdom of Stephen. But more than simply persecution and, and raising that fervor amongst the, the, the people that are out there in the community, we're told very specifically that Satan entered Ananias' heart. Now, there's a few things we need to clarify here as we go forward. First, as just because Satan entered Ananias' heart, it does not absolve him of the guilt and of lying, right? It does not absolve him of his sin. In the early 1970s, maybe there less than half of us would know that area, but there, there used to be a comedian in the United States called Flip Wilson. And every comedian has their catchphrase. The catchphrase of Flip, Flip, Flip Wilson was what, you know? The devil made me do it. <laughs> And so he'd get up on stage and talk about all these situations and blunders uh, or his counter-character, Geraldine, I think her name was, and and get into all of these awful situations, and then he'd say, it wasn't my fault, it was the devil who made me do it. And that was just kind of something we all heard. We know that that's not true. The devil never makes us do anything that we are already not desiring to do. 
He has a way of flipping that on switch for us that, that woos us to the, the, to the awfulness of sin, that says this is something that you would really desire, and you know, it's sitting right in front of you. So he wants us and he gauges us so that, that we do it, but he can never make us do anything. We also know that God never exonerates any of us for sin. It's a basic spiritual principle. Even when we're tempted by God, we're always responsible for our own sin. We're, we're not guilty of sin simply because we're tempted to sin. Now, remember that. That's important that you think about that even later today. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you're sinning. But we are sinning. We are in disobedience when that temptation takes us to action. When we do that which we know is not glorifying unto God or is simply glorifying unto myself, or ourselves. Here's the reality is that in Ananias, Satan found a willing heart. It was like a, a, a field that had been tilled already and prepared and, and, and the seed was already there and Satan just had to pour a little water on it and it sprouted. The second thing we need to kind of think about as we go forth is, were Ananias and Sapphira truly followers of Christ, or were they pretenders? Now, I'm sure in the past you've probably read something that's, you know, led you to one conclusion, or you've thought about it yourself and not really understood. I don't think that they were Christians. Not true believers. And here's why. First and foremost, the verb that's used here is Satan entered in, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. When does Satan enter into the life of one other person? Judas Iscariot. Was Judas accounted as a, an apostle? He was accounted an apostle. Was he considered part of the early church? He was considered part of the early church. Was he a true believer? No. So it, it, it's very easy within a church context, even like ourselves, to say that, that we want to embrace everybody and be inclusive and everyone can do whatever. The reality is, is we don't know where the heart of everybody is yet. And there is a real possibility that there are those amongst us uh, from time to time who may not be true believers whose desire is to actually create dissension. The third thing I think we need to think about, it, it leads us to the question, how, how are we to understand their sin? We're told what it is, but can we go maybe one step farther? When Peter confronts Ananias, there's no opportunity for rebuttal. There's no opportunity to go, but, 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 but and change his mind. There's, there's no opportunity for repentance, is there? He simply reveals the truth of God, and God, in his judgment, strikes him down. It, it, it's like a miracle. God just takes away the very life of Ananias. It's a judgment upon him for the sin. Now, the situation with Sapphira is a little bit different because we, we, there's a little bit of a window given to her as an opportunity, but her response is the same. And because her response is the same, the judgment is the same. The young men are going to carry her out feet first as well. Now, it may raise the question, well, why didn't she know? It's three hours since Ananias died under the judgment of God, and, and she walks in, and she 
doesn't know. No one's told her. Well, remember that what happened with the death of Ananias, it says very specifically, a great fear came upon all who heard these things. A great fear. Who, who wants to go and, and tell the spouse of something? Your husband just miraculously died. He was confronted for sin and he's gone. I, I, I don't know too many of us who would want to do that. So here she comes three hours later. She comes into the room, presumably thinking that, well, my husband has set up this whole scenario, that we're generous givers, and all of this is there, and I'm going to come in, and, and I'm going to receive that blessing and those accolades as well. I'm going to get the praise. She walks into the room, and instead of finding joyful reception, she finds a much different tone, I think, one that I'm sure she must have been a little confused at, and uh, it's grave, it's solemn. You know, they've just witnessed this man dying under God's judgment for sin. And now his wife walks in. Now, remember a time when you were a kid? You did something wrong at school. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was take somebody's milk money. Or, or maybe you were a bit of a bully at the time or teased a girl. And you, you came home and you were kind of blasé about it. And you walk into the room and there's your mom and dad sitting there. And you go, oh, something's up. You know they know something, but you don't know what they know. And they, so they ask, well, how was your day? And you say, well, just fine. You lie because you don't know what they know. This is the situation that Sapphira has walked into. There is an, there is an atmosphere of solemnity. There is an atmosphere of fear that God has pronounced judgment on someone in the church, and now his wife is walking in, and, and she comes in, and, and she feels this. It's, it's palpable. But the reality is, the question is, is, is this the amount of money that the, the, the property was sold for? And she says, yes. So she falls under the judgment of God as well. This isn't just lying to the Holy Spirit at this point. We're also told it's something else. It's testing the Spirit of the Lord. It's testing the Spirit. Now, th I think this detail is, a, is important for us to go that one step farther to understand the character of their sin and the severity of the judgment God pronounces. Because I, I can't imagine God coming in this morning... And we have not, in the few hours that we've been up, already done something worse than lying about our giving and our tithing to the church. And yet, nothing happens. They've told a little white lie about how much money they've received, and God strikes them both dead. There are greater sins amongst us this morning than that. Now, we're not told specifically but I think there's more than enough details that we can pull things together here from this narrative that both Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of the unpardonable sin. Now we know from Matthew 12 in the description of the unpardonable sin there's several things. First and foremost, it is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, that's exactly what we're told this is. So it is a, a blasphemy against the third person of the Trinity. It, it is a denial, a mockery of the work of Christ. 
It's renouncing the work of Christ. And here's the important thing. It's a renouncing of the, of the work of Christ in the face of miracles that are happening before them that demonstrate the truth of this. Not, it's not simply standing forth in somebody and saying, this is the word of God, this is the truth. But it's doing that and having a miracle performed at the same time that says, this is true. And that's exactly the situation in Matthew 12. That's the situation we find here. The early church is performing by the power of the Holy Spirit all of these miracles that are affirming the truth of the gospel. And they're going out and they're mocking the work of Christ and they're lying to the Spirit in the face of truth. As a sovereign God who acts sovereignly in our salvation, once we are justified by faith through the blood of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Nothing can displace you from God's salvation. And this is important because I don't think that a Christian can actually do the unpardonable sin. When we start thinking about the context of what's going on here, and I know that some of you have asked me, you know, even the short two years I've been here, it's something a pastor gets on a regular basis. When, when we're wrestling with our faith and the, the awfulness of sin that we're feeling, somebody will come up and say, have I done the unpardonable sin? First and foremost, if God is sovereign in your life and you are justified by the blood of Christ, nothing can take you out of the protection in the hand of God. And thankfully, in the same way that there's nothing I can do to gain God's merit or gain my salvation, there's certainly nothing I can do that I can lose my salvation. Can I sin grievously? Oh, yeah. Can I fall away and, and be in disobedience for years? Yes. Can I have great doubts? Yes. But we're new creatures in Christ, and our, our wills are now conformed to the image of Christ. And here's, the, here's another encouragement. If, if you're struggling with this, the very fact that you're struggling is a positive sign. If you had done the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't be worrying about it. You wouldn't care about it. You would just been gone. But take comfort that you're wrestling with it because the very act of wrestling demonstrates that you're working towards repentance, that the Spirit is at work to bring that about. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, that those who are not with him are against him. This is the very verse out of which the unpardonable sin comes. So he basically says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And it's those who are against him who are doing the unpardonable sin. That's the specific context of the, of the talking that's going on. He further goes on to talk about the parable of a tree. And by the speech of people, a, a tree that bears good fruit will be known for the good fruit. And a tree that bears evil fruit or bad fruit will be known by what it says as well. And so the reality is, as Jesus is saying, that there are many amongst us who will hear the word of God who will see the power of, uh, of God through miracles and will know it will attest to the truth and yet they will blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But I want to encourage you, that's not who you are if you are in Christ. Because we have been saved by the blood of Christ. The unpardonable sin is all based on the reality that we are not new creatures in Christ, that we have not been forgiven. And you know what? 
just the very verse afterwards, it, it says in uh, Matthew uh, twelve thirty one that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be given or forgiven unto man. Now, that is speaking of those who are on Christ's side, of those who are good fruit, are good trees bearing good fruit. So it, it's good to wrestle. And I think that's the reality of what's going on. Why else would God make such a powerful demonstration of his holiness not giving a chance for repentance, knowing it's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he just passes judgment. It, it all gets to the heart of what we need to understand, I think, this morning. God hates sin. And even more, he hates sin in his people, in the family of God. Why has he condemned them so publicly? Why is it so harsh for a white lie? Because he sees such an evil in this nascent new body of Christ that threatens to take the life and the testimony of the people of God. Here, here they are. They've received the mandate to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very utter ends of the earth. And, and in order to fulfill that mandate, they have the presence of the Holy Spirit working all these great miracles. In just a couple chapters, Stephen is going to be martyred. And you know how you put mentals into a diet cola? The church is just going to explode. It's going to be sent out to all the nations. But before that happens, before the diaspora, before they go out, sin enters into what must have seemed like a perfect, pristine situation. A newborn babe, a new fledgling church is threatened by great evil. And with that evil, it threatens to derail the plan of God for his own glory and for the glory of the church. So again, a grain of leaven has entered the body and God recognizes the damage that it's going to cause and he removes it in such a way that his holiness is on display. His hatred for sin is demonstrated to the people of God so that even in their, their youthful joy of being new babes in Christ, they understand God will not tolerate sin in the church. And he shows his disdain for anyone who would pretend to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who would pretend to come to church and to partake in ministry and to share and to love people when really that's not their desire at all. It's to glorify themselves. In the same way that Achan was judged at the beginning of Israel's entering into the promised land, it was a lesson for the people of God that God would not put up with sin. So too, at the beginning of the church age, God demonstrates his sin against, or his wrath against sin, even in the body of the church. Now, for any of you who you're wondering, you know, how do you preach Christ from the Old Testament? Here is a great example where the, the very words that are chosen to describe the situation links us very specifically with something that happened in the past and gives us the ability to be able to put forward and say the situation that happened with Israel is consonant with ours. There, there is a similarity. As Israel went out into the promised land, 
Sin had to be dealt with. They had to know the reality and the horrendous nature of it. So too, as the church goes out, they have to know the holiness of God and they have to desire after that for themselves. Now, God will not tolerate sin, especially amongst those who say that they belong to him. And Ananias and Sapphira, you know what? They, they didn't get anything that they didn't deserve, did they? The reality is, is that we should all be thankful that God does not deal with us as we deserve because we would all be under the wrath and the condemnation of God. Now, there's one other thing that we need to see here. The result of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, the, the result of that, that judgment of God being so obvious was that a great fear came upon all. Now, it, it says great fear. It's not just quickly read over great fear. It was a great fear. Judgment. If God was amongst us this morning, and, and I'd look at the back and I'd say, James, get ready. I want you to carry someone out and, and bury them right away because of sin. That's a pretty serious thing to contemplate this morning, isn't it? And so we, we see that a great fear not, fell not only upon the church, but upon all who heard. Upon everybody downtown Toronto, upon Scarborough, they would say, this is not a people to fool with. Jesus is not some other God. There truly is a jealousy and a, holy, a zealousness for his name. So God's decision to exact this punishment in this way brought great fear. And I want to say, I encourage you, that this fear has a sanctifying effect. It's not fear for, for fear's sake itself. It is sanctifying the people of God. It's not a bad thing. It was a good thing because it brings spiritual sobriety to the people of God. It humbles the people of God to say, we need to recognize the true awesomeness of God, of who he is, his character, his nature. We say that God is powerful and omnipotent, but do we truly have that overwhelming sense that this is so, that he knows the deepest recesses of my heart and has the right to judge me here and now this morning? Yes, we're under grace, but we must never forget that God is holy in every way. So what, what are some of the things that we should take away this morning? Lessons to kind of put into our own life? Well, I've got three. First and foremost, I think we need to live our lives in integrity, spiritual integrity, with a healthy fear of the Lord. We should never be pretending to be somebody we're not. We must never be seeking recognition, whether it's at work, in our family, or in the church, for being somebody that we're not. We must never, obviously, be seeking fame and fortune, like the example here. The fear of God actually helps us to stay in the path of holiness. Because, you see, left to itself, sin does what? Sin dulls our conscience to the evilness of sin. It, it bends our will so that, it, it weakens our will so that we become more susceptible to sin. 
it hardens our heart and our soul against God and against the truth, and it weakens our ability to repent. The more we sin and rejoice in sinning, the farther away we get from God. But a healthy fear of God, of who He is, of His holiness, the perfections of His character, help to keep sin in check. A remembrance that one day each and every one of us will stand before the judgment throne of Christ. And there is, in, in reality, a window here that is given to us that the beginning of the church, they know that Christ is coming in. There's a great expectation. It could be at any moment. But the reality is, when Christ comes again, there is going to be a great judgment upon all people. If you are saved, if you are truly a child of Christ, you are saved by faith in the blood of Christ. But that day will be fearsome. It will be scary. And I imagine it will be scary even for some of us who have decided to walk in sin and not in righteousness who are walking not as followers of Christ, as we should be, but walking like Ananias and Sapphira. Now this demonstration of God's holiness, uh, of God's wrath against sin within the church has been written down for us so that we would contemplate the integrity of our walk, uh, who we are as individuals, who we are as families, who we are as the family of God, as Chinese gospel church. The integrity of our faith is not only key in living a personal life, that, a personal walk with God that glorifies God, but it is absolutely necessary to our testimony for God, isn't it? How can we claim to, to, to be free from the dominion of sin? and yet continue to wallow in our sin, to hide in our sin, and not allow sin to be confronted even within the body. Lovingly, but confront sin and say, this is not right, this is not acceptable, this is not glorifying to God. When we become complacent with sin, we're in deep trouble. It's God's honor that at stake, isn't it? It's not ours. But here's the thing, if we compromise with sin, we are denying the power of God in us. We are denying the power of the gospel. And this is what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira. This young church, barely walking out of diapers, going forth to, to be testimonies to all the earth, and there is great sin that is at the point of ruining their testimony and God's glory. Because of the sin of Achan, God stopped the advance of his people until they dealt with sin. They suffered a humiliating defeat because sin was in their ranks. And God would not bless them with a powerful manifestation of his presence and his leading until that sin was dealt with. So too, we will not triumph in our calling as individuals committed to Christ, as a church committed to Christ, if we continue to allow sin in our midst, if we do not deal with it, He will not manifest His glory amongst us. He will not lead us in power to go out into our community and to share the gospel if we harbor sin. 
So we as Chinese Gospel Church, we will not succeed to be a missional community desiring to seize every opportunity for Christ if we are languishing in our sin, if we are delighting inwardly, secretly in sin, if we are not confronting sin in the body. We must never lull ourselves into a sense of false security and say, well, that was God then. He wouldn't do that judgment now. Well, if it was the unpardonable sin, he may not do that. But the reality is God has so many more ways to exact his judgment. And sometimes that is to let sin run its full course so that the full consequences of our choice to sin against his glory come to bloom and will ruin our lives. God does not take sin lightly. And a right fear of God, a right fear of the Lord is essential to a healthy church. So I pray that we learn to fear the Lord. Now the second point I just want to say very quickly is, is that we need to think about church discipline. This is important. Have you ever thought about it this way? What's happened here in chapter 5 is the first example of church discipline. Now, God does it, but it's church discipline, isn't it? When they sinned, God brought swift and terrible judgment on them. It was His desire to preserve His glory amongst His people, to preserve their integrity, the integrity of the gospel, the integrity for the, of the purpose for which He has called them forth, and He acts decisively as a surgeon and radically cuts out sin so that it doesn't infect the rest of the church and here's the question that we need to think about this morning if god in acts chapter 5 is so zealous for his glory so jealous for the purity of his people for the glory of his own name that he would deem it necessary to bring corrective discipline by taking the lives of two members before the congregation we too should be prepared to confront sin in the body. God's desire is that he be glorified amongst his people, and he hates sin. So too, we must have that same desire amongst us. Now, I don't wish for us to deal with it in such a way that all of a sudden people start dying like flies this morning. That's, that's not it. But the reality is, Corrective discipline is saying that there is a sin in your life that is a huge problem. It is not glorifying God. It is moving you away from the church and away from God. And we want to lovingly walk along beside you. That's a lesson for another day. <laughs> but the reality is, is, if this is God's desire, if he is zealous for these things, we too should have a zealous desire for church discipline. After all, again... It's nothing less than the glory of God that's at stake, isn't it? It's the glory of the gospel. And the third thing I think we need to take seriously here, the reality of Satan. Now, we know Satan exists. Uh, somehow there's a disjoint between what we know is going to happen in Revelation in the final days as Satan is loosed and all the terrible things he happens to thinking that he is not active today. To think that he is not active in the church today. Here's the thing. If he can't topple the testimony of the church, if he can't topple the testimony of your life from without, he's going to do it from within. 
He's going to come into the church, and that's exactly what he's done here with Ananias. He's come into the body of Christ, and he desires to take away the glory of the gospel, the glory of Christ that's revealed there. He is active in the world, even in the church. Now, that may sound shocking, <laughs> but he is active in the church to do whatever he can, and if it were possible, to even deceive the elect, to destroy the testimony and the integrity of God's people. The ultimate example of what happens of Satan when he enters into the life of a person, we have before us. It's, it's possible for Satan to enter into a non-Christian. So again, it, there can't be uh, an indwelling of a, a demon or a Satan himself in the life of a Christian. There can't be that division. There can, no house is divided against itself. But the reality is that there may be someone that you know who their sin has got to such a point that Satan has wooed them and he's prepared to enter into them to create devastation, not only in their life, but in every life that they're, they're connected with. And, and that's a sobering thing to think about. Satan is real, and he's powerful. So out of, out of everything, here's the thing. We need to understand that we must not be foolish to think that God would never judge his people. He obviously does. He brings judgment against the house of Israel first when sin threatens the purity and the integrity of God's people. The lack of spiritual integrity that, that we may think is not important is very important to God. First and foremost, because it is His glory and not ours. God takes it very seriously. And if we're not prepared to guard our own spiritual uh, integrity, we may find ourselves under some kind of judgment, just like Ananias and Sapphira. So if we're not prepared to guard that spiritual integrity, we won't fulfill the purposes of God that he would have for us here this morning as a church. We will not be his witnesses here downtown in the communities where we are. We will become a byword and a laughingstock to those around us instead of they're people of Jesus, they're somebody to watch out for because they're serious about sin. And I pray that that is your heart this morning, that we would not hold anything back for ourselves, anything that God has given us in gifts and talents and abilities, we would truly be selfless servants, giving all for the glory of Christ, that we might go forth and fulfill the purpose for which he has called us. Let us pray.